Open your Bibles with me to Acts chapter 2. We're moving on. Acts chapter 2. We're going to pick up at verse 40, where uh, uh, it's the tail end of Peter's uh, sermon in Acts chapter 2, and uh, we come to this part, and, and, and this is such an incredibly important part. Verse 40, with many other words, he warned them, that's Peter, he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. This is God's word. Um, The passage that we read today is a very familiar passage. It's incredibly concise. But it's also just full of so many things. And uh, I think I literally tried to preach four sermons this morning. You know, it was just so, so I, I don't know what I'm going to do this service. I'm just going to kind of go, Lord, you, you're going to kind of, because I'm not prepared to kind of change right now, but I'm going to have to change right now to, to get the essential parts. You notice how much stuff is in here? I mean, there's just so many descriptors, right, of the early church and what they were and how they acted, so on and so forth. Um, but, 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 but all of that actually is prefaced by the, this, this verse 40, where Peter says something very interesting. Look at verse 40 again. I want to put it up there again. He says, with many words, he warned them, and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this generation. Now, you guys, for those of us that grew up in church, good church folk, th- this verse sounds probably a little weird, because church theology typically would have said, and save yourselves from... What? From hell. Eternal damnation, whatever. You know, because the whole theology is in the church. Jesus Christ died for you so you can, you know, be forgiven of your sins and go to heaven and not go to hell. But Peter doesn't say that. There's no talk about heaven, eternity. He says, becoming a Christian, save yourselves from this generation. Why? Eugene Peterson, one of my favorite authors, translates this verse in his version of the Bible, the message this way. He says, he went on in this vein for a long time, urging them over and over, get out while you can. Get out of this sick and stupid culture. Peter says, this is what salvation is. Now watch this, you guys. This is so incredibly critical and important to understanding the Christian life. Peter knows that the people that he's talking to are people who are participating in an entire mindset, a culture, a generation. People these days, when we talk about a generation, past elections, the young, this generation, so on and so forth, people aren't just talking about an age group. What are they talking about? They're talking about a group of people who have a common value system, a worldview, the way they think about life what they think is important, how they view issues like sexuality, relationships, so on and so forth. Generation is more than just an age group. Generation describes a whole culture, as Eugene Peterson says. And here's what Peter's saying. He's saying becoming a Christian is not about agreeing to a set of beliefs so that you can be forgiven of your sins and go to heaven. He says becoming a Christian is understanding, A, you are participating in a whole mindset, a worldview, a value system of the culture that you live in. And becoming a Christian is saying there is a severing of loyalty to that culture, the mindset, the worldview, and following an entire different worldview, entire different mindset, an entire different counterculture, if you will. The kingdom of God. Does that make sense? Becoming a Christian means that you examine every facet of your life and ask the question, am I following the spirit and the attitudes of my peers and the society I live in, or am I living my life following the spirit and truth of God? And at least you radically examine life where you look at everything in your life through a different lens. So that means being a Christian isn't compartmentalizing your life to God, Jesus, and faith. No matter how big those compartments are, 
Christian life obliterates any compartmentalization, and we submit and yield our every aspect of our lives to the kingship of Jesus. Hmm? So how we view everything in life is looked through a different lens. This is so important, you guys. And why do we do that? We do that because we no longer belong to the kingdom of this world, but we belong to the kingdom of God. And in this kingdom, there is a different king. And his name is Jesus. And following this king, check this out, following this king leads to a radically countercultural different life in every aspect. Why? Look at the king that we serve in this kingdom. This king wins through losing. This king comes to power by giving power away. This king comes to wealth and riches by giving everything away, including of himself. Following this king means that we invite and embrace a radically different, radically inversed, inverse is that a word? An inversion, a countercultural lifestyle. Does that make sense? I, this is so. That's what it means to be a Christian, you guys, is that we live our lives following this king in this kingdom where all of our value system, all of our priorities, mindset, what we think is important is completely turned upside down. Okay, I can flesh this out and I'm just going to watch my time because let me tell you how this played out. Power. Power. So how do we people in the kingdom view power? What does it mean to be a Christian with issue of power? I, I was just sharing this morning, so discouraged after the elections, certain segments of Christian communities saying, saying, in light of who's been elected and who didn't get elected, in four years, we can't wait to get the power back. And I want to say to those folks and some of us who may think the same, we serve a king in this kingdom whose height in his leadership and his career was when he got crucified, not when he got elected. Exactly. Amen. More in death than life. See how radically different this is. Here's what it means to be a Christian with regards to power. In the world out there, people, people, people long for power so they can lord it over people, use people to manipulate, so on and so forth. What does it mean to be a Christian who utilizes power in a kingdom way? Here's what it means. That means that if you're a Christian in position of power at work, you're not spouting Bible verses or forming a Bible study. That's what it means to be a Christian. It means that you utilize your power in a Christ-honoring way by using it for the least of these in humble service. That's what it means to be a Christian. See how radically different that is? Okay? See how radically different that is? Okay? Let's keep going. What about us finding our significance and our value? Out in the world, people find their significance and their value and worth in their jobs, in their careers, in their mates, in their relationships, and whatever else have you. What does it mean to be a Christian, to belong to a different generation? It doesn't mean that we're good moral people who come to church on Sundays. It means that you examine where is your foundation? Where is your identity? Where is your security? What are you building your life on? And being a Christian is radically examining the underneath kinds of stuff so that we build our lives upon the solid rock. And his name is Jesus. Do you see what I'm saying? See how radically different this is? Okay, money. We use some money. What does it mean to be a Christian, a countercultural Christian in regards to money? Some of us, we think being a Christian is just tithing regularly and giving to charity. That's not all it entails. Being a Christian means that you look at money in a completely different light and you ask questions like, why am I spending money on that? Why am I spending money on that? And you embrace a life of simplicity. Can I keep going? One more? Issue of sexuality and relationships. What does it mean to be a counterculture Christian? It doesn't just mean that you don't have sex before marriage. Come on. 
Is that all it entails to be a Christian? I know that for some of us, that may be like, here's what it means. Here's what it means to be a countercultural Christian in regards to sexuality. It means that when it comes to finding that person that you want to marry, it means that the filter and the lens through which you find your mates and the priorities are radically different. That means that a countercultural Christian doesn't look at, are they attractive as the first priority? Do they have money as the first priority? It means that you look at the essence of their character. And their love for Jesus. I mean, is that kind of corny to say? Just radically different this is. We think that being a Christian who got to sexuality is, well, don't have sex. That's just the, that's just the beginning. Radical, countercultural Christian living is to say, I, I just shared this morning, and I'm getting tired of young singles in our church. And when I talk to them, you know, they're distraught because they're single and stuff like that. When you hear them, it's because they're waiting for Miss Universe. And I seriously want to go, have you looked at yourself in the mirror lately? (laughs) You guys, I mean, (laughs) ladies, did you like that one? (laughs) That was for you. That was for you. I gave you a bone this morning. I threw a bone. You know what, though? I I, I, I keep going. Do Do you guys see? Is this radical? Is this radical? Yeah. See how different this is. This is what it means to be a Christian. This is what it means to be a follower of Jesus. It's not agreeing to a set of beliefs and then moral behavior and moral conformity. It's about looking at every aspect of our lives and going, am I following the spirit and age of this culture? Am I following the spirit of God and living my life based on truth? How are you doing? How am I doing? Are you part of this generation? Are you part of the culture, this radical culture that God is forming? Okay, if you thought that was like, whoa, check this out. Because it gets even worse. Yeah, it gets even worse. To be a Christian and following Jesus, okay? And this gets to this whole aspect of community. Some of us think community is small groups. I need to be a part of a small group because, you know, well, that's what good Christians do, right, David? You know, we, because we, that's what good, we part of a small group and I checklist or I need some help. You don't understand the reality, spiritual reality of what God says in his Bible. Check this out. A couple of verses up there. Oh, 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 this quote. I'm sorry, can you go back? This quote by a commentator on verse 40. When Peter says, save yourself from this corrupt generation, and they began to be baptized, Peter's not asking for private individual conversion, but for identification with a whole new community, a new humanity. These people are transferring from a world society that they belong to into what was a new and being saved society. Do you know what this means? Peter is literally saying being a Christian is not about individual conversion where your individual needs are going to be met via this individual relationship with God. Being a Christian is you being joined to a living organism. You being joined to a group of people. You being joined. You being joined to, the Bible uses words like a new community, a new humanity, a new city. And that comes with the deal. Hello? It comes with the deal. You can't have this relationship with God without at the same time being joined to this. Let me show you a couple of verses. So metaphors that the Bible uses, the body. Just as each of us has one body with many members, these members do not all have the same function. So in Christ, we who are many form one body and each member belongs to all the others. Do you get that? Body. Can I just say, can, 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 a part, can a part of our body survive without being attached to the rest of the body? Yeah. Tina says, yeah. <laughs> Stop being smart. Next verse. <laughs> the body is a unit, though it's made up of many parts, and though all its parts are many, they form one body. So it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. The Bible says that when you become a Christian, there is a supernatural reality where you literally, literally get joined to a living organism called the body, and you become a part of that body. 
Oh, I know you're going, I get it. No, you don't. Can I just show you what this means? You know what this means? This means, this means you don't get to decide who you sleep with. That's not your body. Did that like not make sense or are you just kind of thinking about that going, whoa, whoa, whoa? You don't get to decide, I'm going to sleep with whoever I want. No, you don't. It's not your body. Your body is a part of a larger body, a body of Christ. So when you say, I'm going to sleep with whoever I want to, you are completely disregarding this incredibly powerful spiritual reality that your body doesn't belong to you and you only, your body belongs to the body of Christ, where all of us. So I know this sounds weird, but you know what? If you want to sleep with somebody, you got to ask us. You guys, talk to me here. Is that shocking to somebody? It's awkward. (laughs) When when you say, when you say, I'm not going to submit to the larger body of Christ, I can do whatever I want to, you have completely bought into the culture in which you live in, which says, my business is none of your business. I'm sorry, but you know what the Bible says? Your business is our business. David, this is why your job is so hard, dude. I mean, this is a foreign concept in church. It is. And you know what? Just think about it. Same thing with money. Same thing with time. Our attitude is, it's my time. It's my money. No, it isn't. Now, I'm sorry. You're going to have to go home and just kind of wrestle with that, deal with that. I'm just speaking biblical truth. I know it sounds totally crazy right now, but the reality is your time, your body, your money, everything you have, it doesn't just belong to you. It belongs to the body of Christ of which you are a part of. If you don't like that, go, th- go deal with Jesus. What does this mean? Do you know what this means? It puts directly in conflict with where we go, I don't want to do that. Why? It doesn't make any sense. Are you going to do what makes sense or are you going to do what the truth of God calls you to? Well, it's not very convenient. Really, I don't know. Last time I checked, the Christian life ain't very convenient. <laughs> it's not. It's not very popular. It's not, and the list goes on and on. I am telling you, we are a people who are called to truth and to what's right. Amen? Amen. I know this is hard. I know this is just kind of like, whoa. But unless we embrace this reality, think about this. This whole small group idea, forget about it, man. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding? If we don't understand this, you're going to go small group, maybe, maybe not. Accountability, if I feel like it. A group of people I'm going to share my life with when it's convenient. The Bible says that is a totally crazy, outrageous idea that's unbiblical. (laughs) I know this is just like, I mean, I say some crazy stuff up here on Sundays. I know you guys, but this is like, by the way, if you're not a Christian, I am so glad you're here because you know what? Listen. Following Jesus, this is what it means. This is what it means. Following Jesus is not, oh, so I agreed to a set of beliefs and doctrines and I got it. So I'm following Jesus means all of this that we're talking about. Okay, so uh, hi, hi, Chris, what? you seem to be, are you on board with this whole thing? No, I understand the whole thing. Yeah. Although there's a bunch of people here, there's really only one life. There's really only God. We can be separate, but we're still just one divine dichotomy. Mm-hmm. You're Peter, I'm Chris, this is Grace. Still, there's only one of us. Yeah. It's powerful spiritual reality of the Since oneness that's here. Giving away your money, give yeah. it all away. You're going to get more back. You won't know what to do with it. <laughs> See, that's... It's right, and that's yeah, incredibly the, radical the for us. The universe returned to you many times. Not one more time, many times. Mm-hmm. 
How many of you guys, this is just, this whole idea of being a part of this community, this group and a living organism, like, is this just like, talk to me here. Somebody say something before I move on. Besides Chris, Chris has talked enough already. What do you think? Boy, this is, come on. We convince ourselves we're not. Yeah. Anybody else? It simultaneously makes things easier and Oh, that's very. Did you guys get that? Oh, that was deep. She said it simultaneously makes things a lot easier, but also much more difficult. Yeah. Anybody else? You guys are just so smart. Yeah, we have to completely like relearn. I should have you guys come up here and preach. These are like sermon points that like preach itself. We have to relearn how we live. I'm telling you, the reason why I'm spending this much time on verse 40 is you guys, if you don't understand verse 40, the rest of this just ain't going to make sense. By the way, if you're feeling really, Chris said awkward, I don't know if that's a good awkward or a bad awkward, but if you're feeling right now, Christian life just got a lot harder for me, thank you, Jesus. (laughs) Praise God. Praise God. I'm telling you, Michael, this is huge. Okay. We're going to go on. We're going to go on. Major, major shifting of gears. Okay, major shifting of the gears. The reason why verse 40, 41 are important is because as we look at verse 42 and on down, and there's so much here, and I'm just, I can't. I don't have time to like cover all the, all the ass, facets. I'm just going to cover some of the more important ones. All the stuff that we're going to see, you guys, is two things. Number one, all the things that we're going to see then is an outgrowth and a description of a group of people who are doing this new generation thing. What does it look like? What does it look like? What does it look like for these people to live sort of these countercultural lives? And we begin to see descriptions of that. Secondly, they're able to do that because of the Spirit's power. Anybody thankful for that? They're able to do that because these are a group of people who have been empowered and filled by the Holy Spirit. Because what we're just talking about right now, I don't have it in me to do this. Do you? We don't. All right? So as we look at the descriptions of the early church, along with getting, oh my gosh, I don't know if we could ever do that, be encouraged because the Spirit of God is at work. Verses 42 to 47, there's many, many more, but I'm going to three broad strokes, three sort of characteristic attributes of what describe them, okay? First is, it was a community of theological depth. Secondly, it was a community of relentless evangelism. And third, and this is the part that I want to spend most time with, so I need to move quickly, it was a community of intimate relationships, Intimate relationships. First, it was a community of theological depth, and they were committed to ministry of learning. Learning. I just want to mention a couple things here, if you're taking notes. The Bible says over and over again here, verse 42 is a central verse, it says they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. Check this out. The word devoted, because it happens like two, three times. The word devoted occurs six times in the book of Acts. The last time it appears is in verse 14 of chapter 1, where it says the apostles were devoted to prayer, or constantly in prayer. Okay, the meaning is stubbornly, obstinately persisting in something. In other words, this is something that they were stubbornly doing. They just stuck to it. Okay? They were intentional about it. They were strategic about it. Every time they had an opportunity to, they did it. Now, watch this. What was it that they were devoted to? It says they were devoted to the apostolic teaching. Here's why that's important. Apostolic teaching was, in that time, the Old Testament, along with the, 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 the 40 days of training that they received from Jesus. Today, apostolic teaching is scriptures. Why is that important? When they got together, guess what was the focal point of their discussion? The Bible. When they got together, guess what was the focal point of their study? The Bible. I mean, I'm okay with our small groups, our community groups, reading books, you know. Books are good. I like books. Got some. But boy, these folks, when they got together, they said, you know, reading books and discussing, that's pretty cool. But let's get down to what's really important, and let's study the Word of God. Now, you guys, here's why that's important. Because here's what we need to do in community, and this is why it's so critical. You know what community is for as related to the Word of God? 
the community we find ourselves in is that place where you and I need to be and speak the gospel to each other. And I need you to be and speak the gospel to me. We don't need any more self-help, therapeutic motivation and talking endlessly. Amen. Somebody amen to that. We don't need any more of that. When somebody is discouraged, we don't need any more self-help, therapy, and motivation. When somebody's discouraged, he or she, your brother, your sister, needs to be reminded of the gospel of Jesus Christ and who God is and what he has done. And when I am discouraged, I don't need somebody to come and say, well, you know, according to the latest 10 friends, I need somebody to be and speak the gospel. And this is what was happening throughout this church. They were being and speaking the gospel to each other. It was a church committed to ministry of learning. Secondly, it was a church that was committed to relentless evangelism. Relentless evangelism via word and deed. Via word and deed. You know what I love about this church, about this community of people? is every day somebody came to know Jesus. I mean, holy cow. Verse 47. Every day, daily, people were being added to their number. Every single day. Is that possible today? Yes. Of course it is. You know why it doesn't happen more often? Because we don't expect God to move like that, do we? Well, I do. You do? <laughs> <It does. laughs> Making all of us feel real bad this morning, Chris. <laughs> he says, I, yeah, every day somebody comes to know Jesus because of me. It doesn't happen to me all that often. Okay. Several. Okay, you're really making me feel bad now. Throughout. Every day, more and more and more. Every day. People come to know Jesus. Secondly, the evangelism was based on demonstration through community. You guys, here's why this is so important. Here's what the Bible says. The Bible says that the people, people saw them, the community, living together, doing life together. And something happened there together in such a way that they enjoyed the favor of all the people. In other words, there were people that were looking at this community of people, this small group of people, the the people doing life, and, and, and they were so drawn to it, they were so drawn to the way that they did life together, that they were actually brought to a saving knowledge of who Jesus was. Paradigm shift. The Bible, especially in the book of Acts, so much more than just my individual life showing Christ-likeness to the world around me, the Bible constantly gets to what does the community of God, what do you together display that will show Jesus to the world? Uh, if you're a college student and you're part of a Christian fellowship, do you know that much more powerful than your individual witness in your dorms is what the campus says about your fellowship? Our church, as much as we're going to be about witness and individual, and we've got, you know, super-duper evangelist Chris over here doing his thing, people coming to know Jesus, our church and our ability to do evangelism in this community, in the city, will be what do they see in us together. It makes sense, because if you think, how do you display unconditional love by yourself? How do you display generosity by yourself? How do you display reconciliation of God that reconciles us sinful humanity to God and us to each other? How do you do reconciliation by yourself? Can somebody really smart tell me how? Because I'd like to know. How do you display generosity of God and what he has done and is doing in this world by yourself? We need each other to be that Has this sunk in? Has this sunk in to you? Is this, is this real to you? Is this real to you? Are you talking about this within your community groups? When you guys get together, are you as much talking about your own personal witness as you are about your group together and what you are doing together that would display to the watching world? Another aspect of their witness was not just how they did it together, but they did evangelism not just through word, but also through deeds. People weren't just told about who God was. They were shown who God is. Um, One of the things that I I, I just am so proud of about our church 
is this truth, and I see it alive, is this truth that we as a church, and we don't all do together well, other stuff, but certain ministries of our church are literally living this out day to day, week to week, whether it be the warming center or the Michael Legal Aid Clinic or just other things, where evangelism and talking about Jesus isn't just telling them in words, but many times through deeds, showing them, showing them. Um, I want to read you this. Um, this is a, this was a letter. It's, it's actually kind of a famous, those of you that are kind of, you know, book study history nerds, if you want to, uh, Google Epistle to Diognetus, Epistle to Diognetus. It was a letter that was sent to a Roman official by a Christian, okay, a Roman, uh, Roman official by a Christian, and in this letter, in this letter, uh, uh, we see this dynamic of how the early church and early Christians did evangelism, not just by telling people about Jesus, but by radically living lives of generosity, radic- living lives of compassion and justice and mercy. And listen to what he says. He says, let me tell you why Christianity is spreading so fast. They share their table with everyone, but they don't share their bed with everyone. That's very telling. Because this was a culture, Darius, did you just, you just caught that? Because this was a culture in which people are incredibly liberal and licentious about their bodies and sexuality, but when it came to money, incredibly stingy. Christians come along and they're all about, we're going to be stingy with their bodies. We don't sleep with anybody. We don't, we don't sleep with just anybody. This, and we're incredibly generous with their money. It was a completely countercultural, like never seen that before, lifestyle. They share their table with everyone, but they don't share their beds with everyone. And then they said, and then the little goes on, they love everyone, but are persecuted by all. They are poor and yet make many rich. They are short of everything, and yet they have plenty of everything. That is so telling, because what it's saying is, is that they were so radically generous, so radically generous, that they literally were short of things, but that they also had everything. Why? Because they, they so embraced a radical simplicity that these are people who lived with contentment with what they had. So they literally lacked nothing. And they kept giving and giving and giving and giving. And then at the, the very end, they are treated outrageously but behave respectfully. They are mocked and blessed in return. When they do good, they are attacked. When they are attacked, they rejoice as if being given new life. Do you know if the world noticed or not? The emperor of that time was a guy named Julian who wanted to wipe Christianity off the face of the earth. And writing to one of his one of his, uh, uh, I guess, friends, he writes in a letter, here's the reason why. Here's the reason why the vitality of the, the, the Christian, the Christian, the church is vital. He says, they not only take care of their poor, but they take care of our poor as well. The extent to which we as a community, church, you and your small groups, are doing radical Ministry, not just in word, but in deed. People have a hard time seeing Jesus. Lastly, lastly, about evangelism. About evangelism. It was an outflow of something that they were experiencing. It was an outflow of something that they were experiencing. In other words, look at verse 46. It says, they were praising God and therefore enjoying the favor of all the people. Praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. Praise of God became the dynamic and the engine to which they did evangelism. Anybody like C.S. Lewis? C.S. Lewis wrote this piece on, 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 it was not evangelism. It was actually about worship and beauty. That to me was like the, 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 the clinching thing for why, for some of us, the experience of evangelism, I said this morning, is like, it's like the experience of like trying to sell used cars. You know, you're trying so hard and guilt and there's some sort of, you know, duty and obligation. Listen to what C.S. Lewis says that completely changes that mindset. He says, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise does not merely express but completes the joy. Praise is pointed consummation. It's not simply the compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight itself is incomplete until it is expressed. Do you see what he's saying? When you love somebody and you deeply love somebody and you, you know, you got the new, just, 
the joy that's experienced, watch this, from just feeling it like, oh, I love you, I love you, I love you, to when you look at that person and you say, I love you. C.S. was saying, the articulation of, I love you, completes, not just compliments, it completes that joy. The experience of joy itself is incomplete until you get it out. <laughs> Get it out. When you find something you love, art, sports, music. This is C.S. Lewis. And beautiful, there is something lovely and beautiful about the thing itself that makes you want to grab somebody and pull them and say, look, listen. Can you relate? Why? Because beautiful objects demand praise. Every beautiful object demands praise. And every joy you get from a beautiful object has to get out. It has to liberate itself in praise. It has to get out. You've got to say, look how great that is. You have to do it. And you do not find that your joy is completed until it utters itself and conveyed to somebody else. And when somebody says, yeah, the joy finds itself. You do not simply express your joy, but you complete your joy when you praise the object of beauty. Do you know what evangelism is? And why is it, if we do it, we experience what the early disciples are experiencing. Evangelism is simply getting your joy out. Evangelism is simply getting your joy out. Evangelism is saying, look how amazing he is. Look how great he is. Look how beautiful. Look how amazing he is. That's evangelism. It's just getting your joy out. Now, so why don't we do more evangelism? No joy. You guys, there's a fundamental philosophy of teaching, preaching at this church you need to know about, and that is this. We, would, we are never going to come and say, you need to do this, you need to do the evangelism, the good Christians, da, 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 because the reality is that's just going to result in legalism, duty, obligation. Why do you think every Sunday, every Sunday, me or whoever is preaching up here gets and talks about the cross, the cross, the cross, the cross, the cross? Because just as when you listen to a beautiful piece of music, Nobody has to tell you. Go tell somebody about that. You grab somebody and go, Brian, check this out. Listen. I know and you know that joy you experience as a result of experiencing the gospel of Jesus Christ to the depths of our soul will naturally and inevitably result in you wanting to grab somebody and saying, you got to gonna leave it there I'm just gonna leave it there how are you doing how am I doing okay now we come to the third sign okay we're gonna this is this is the most important intimate relationships can I ask a question is community hard is community hard Tell me, let's talk. Why is it hard? Why is it so hard? You have to be real. Thank you. You have to trust. Who said that? You have to trust. Okay. Why else? You have to be vulnerable. Boy, we're getting to some powerfully emotional words. Yeah. Anybody else? Whoa. Hey, good morning to you too, Kevin. Or good afternoon, I should say. Kevin says, you got to leave your ego at home. That's a bold deal. It's okay. Anybody else? It's not reciprocal. Oh, okay. Yeah, there's nothing like putting yourself out there only to have somebody go, mm-hmm, no thanks. That's very hard. I'm serious. Anybody like been... Yeah, I, oh man, oh, oh, oh. It's hard. Anybody else? Come on, talk about yourself. Why is community hard for you? You have to devote time. Man, you guys are preaching this sermon yourself, okay? Why else is community hard for you? 
Yeah. Oh, man, because the people that you put yourself, pour yourself into are not perfect, so they're going to let you down. We just give up and just call it a day and go home. You know, this is like impossible. What's the point? Okay, let's keep going. Chris? I think community requires you to be Christ-like, where individuality allows you to be human. That is so deep. I'm going to think about that one. Say that one more time, loud, so they could hear you. So community requires you to be Christ-like, where individuality allows you to be human. Man, I don't even know what that means, and I think it's powerful. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I know what that means. Okay, okay, listen, listen, listen. Man, I feel bad for the 9 o'clock service because I feel like, I feel like, okay, why is community so hard? We all know. Now, you guys, encouragement. You ready? Encouragement, encouragement, okay? Check this out. The early church, they had to work at it. Is that encouraging to anybody? They, stinking, had to work at it. How do we know? Verse 42, they devoted themselves to fellowship. It didn't come naturally. Hallelujah. It didn't come naturally. Praise God. It was hard. They had to work at it. All the issues, all the issues that we wrestled with, they wrestled with. And then on top of that, we got more though. Let me just real quickly, here's, you guys all know this, isms. We wrestle because of isms. What do I mean? Individualism. I mean, for crying out loud, we are so inundated and better. You guys are still thinking about the whole, you can't sleep with whoever you want to part. You're still stuck on that. I know. You're going, you left me there. And, I, and you went on, but I'm still stuck on that. Why? Because to us, it makes no sense. When according to scriptures, discipleship, let me say, is impossible without contribution to and participation in Christ-honoring, gospel-centered community. (laughs) Impossible. What about the second ism? What about the self-idolatrous consumerism? Can I say that? Oh, Lord. Do you realize how antithetical consumerism is to the whole of Scripture? Did somebody say preach? You know, you guys, consumerism has so impacted us. So for many of us, we're still asking the question of, well, what am I going to get out of this? And then there's this. And then there's the biblical truth that, check this out. Us here, we're not friends. We're family, but we're not friends. <laughs> Look at what Paul says. You are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household. You guys, when I, when I caught on to this truth, <laughs> it was both a relief. Somebody said earlier, it was both a relief and a huge discouragement. Because here's a relief. This is why it's so hard. This is why it's so hard, community, okay? Because we didn't get to choose each other. <laughs> Sorry. I'm going to be as blunt as I didn't get to choose you. And you didn't get to choose me. <laughs> But isn't it powerful that Jesus has the audacity to say, and throughout the Bible too, when we join this thing, the community of God, we're not friends. We're family. Can I ask you something? Would you choose your family members? There's some of us going, yeah, absolutely, I would choose my family members. But for many of us, we honestly would say, no, if I had my choice, I wouldn't choose my family members. And guess what, you guys? And this is the biblical truth that you and I have to come to groups with. God says this. God says, when you join this thing called the community of faith, God says, when you initially join, you don't, 
You don't join this thing with people that you get to pick and choose like you would your significant others or your friends. You know, people that you choose that you get along with, you know, you have common interests together, you know, you share things in common, so there's a natural connection. You sometimes even come from similar backgrounds, similar city, ethnicity, race. The family of God, God has audacity to say, when you join the family of God, you don't get to pick and choose who they are because here's the deal. When you come into this family and you get a father, your heavenly father, you also get brothers and sisters. And just as ludicrous as it is for someone to say, I like you, Father, but I don't like your kids. So I want to deal with you, but I don't want to deal with your kids. God says, you cannot enter into this thing and say, God, I want to deal with you, but I want to have nothing to do with your kids. God says, I approach you and embrace you with unconditional, enduring love. I take you and I receive you as you are, as you are as you are. And he says, the way you relate to each other is the same way I relate to you. It's unconditional, enduring love. And you accept them as they are. Do you know that this is the reason why the church literally won over all the other religions in the Roman Empire? Because all the other religions in the Roman Empire were classified according to, you had to be a part of a class, certain education, and certainly sometimes certain race, ethnicity. Christianity comes along and obliterates all these distinctions, and people saw that and said, where is the power in that? What the heck is going on there? This is the reason why Apostle Paul, educated of a high class, was able to write deep moving letters to slaves and servants and say, I long to be with you. Here's a question, application, as we move forward. Do you have somebody in your life right now that you're looking at them and you're astonished that you could love them? Because without the cross, those are people you despise, those are people you ignore, those are people you look down upon, those are people you would have never had anything to do with before. But is there somebody, is there somebody, is there somebody in your life right now that you're looking at and saying, how the heck are we together? And the only answer is the cross, the cross, the cross. Now, guys, don't misunderstand. I'm putting in the negative terms. And most of, of course, eventually, you want to make them into your friends. You know what I'm saying? I forgot to mention that this morning. I don't know. They'll walk down going, I hate this thing. No, eventually. And you might even want to eventually find one of them to be your significant other. But the key is this. Key is they start out not as your friends or your significant other, but they start out as your brother and as your sister. What will you do? Guys, in a church like ours, in a church like ours, the litmus test on whether the Spirit of God is at work and we get this will be so much more pronounced because the reality is the watching world will look at us and go, y'all got nothing in common. Look at, I mean, race, ethnicity, culture, class. But how in the, can I just, will this be our apologetic for the watching world that looks at us? And again, I'm come, I'm, I have to come here. Do you have somebody in your life that you look to and saying, it's astounding to me that we're friends? It's astounding me that we're friends. Where are my notes? (laughs) Here it is. Okay, you guys. I got to wrap this up. I got to wrap this up. A couple other things about this community. And then then I want to just share some practical application, if we could have that. Uh, The other thing that described them, and I love this. You notice in verse 46, it said they met every day. But you know what? It says in verse 44, this group of people... What? Think about us. Verse 46, it says they met every day, but verse 44 says they were together. Why is it important? Together wasn't just something that they did. Together was something that they were and lived. 
we say the same thing, you know? You, you guys know, we, when we talk, you know, when we talk about two people who are dating, you know, you notice we go, oh yeah, they're together. They're together. And we're not talking about, well, they were at that restaurant, you know, eating lunch. When we say they're together, we're talking about a mode of existence. And the Bible amazingly says these people, they were together. They were together. The apostles didn't have to say, will you please join a small group? (laughs) The apostles have to come and say, you need community. The apostles literally, I think, had to come and say, y'all got to stop spending so much time together. You have family, don't you? You got jobs to do. (laughs) David, that's our litmus test, bro. The day that you and I can go, you know what? We have a serious problem in this church. We have a serious problem. You're just spending too much time together. (laughs) Do you know why that's powerful for me? Do you know that their being together was a sign of their spiritual life? It was a sign that the Spirit of God had descended on them. They didn't have to be commanded to, duty, obligation. It was a natural sign of the Spirit-filledness of that community. Okay, a couple more real quick. Uh, It was economic as well as spiritual, their community. In other words, they didn't just sit around and pray together and read the word together. The word koinonia, which Luke uses for fellowship, was a secular Greek word literally used for sharing of possessions. Sharing of possessions. In other words, their fellowship and their community touched their pocketbooks, not just their time. You know, Roland, what he did, I actually shared that this morning at a nine o'clock service. But the reality is, I could have nine other stories I could share with you guys about how our church and community groups have done this. I could tell you about a community group, for example, who had within it a couple, a mom, and a dad who couldn't afford diapers. And our church office was filled with diapers and clothes and necessary things. I could tell you about how when Roland still lost his bike three weeks ago, an email sent out, was sent out that night by one of our key leaders that said, Roland got his bike stolen. We need to be there for him. And my mailbox was flooded with people saying, let me help, let me help, let me help, let me help. I can tell you about communities in our church where somebody lost a job and they literally needed a car to go to work or to look for jobs. And people just came along and said, here, I could take public transportation. Go ahead, take my car. I can tell you about communities in our church where they opened their home rent-free and allowed people to live with them for months at a time. And in case anyone wants to go, you know, they practice socialism. You know that, right? I have an answer for you. I have an answer. You want to sound real snooty? Because verse 45, where it says selling their possessions, in the Greek, it's in the imperfect tense, which basically means that they sold it as need arose. So when somebody says, that's socialism, you go, well, according to the imperfect tense of the Greek, they actually sold it according to their need. (laughs) That was stupid the first service. That was stupid the second service as well. Okay. All right. All right. All right. Well, that's good. At least you're all consistent. Okay. Last thing. Last thing. See, I would do that. You wouldn't because you're not snooty, but I would go, actually, it's not. No. Stop it there. Okay. The last characteristic attribute was that it was a community that was filled with joy and authenticity. Verse 46. It says, they, when they got together, they got together and had glad and sincere hearts. Glad, joy. Literally, every time they got together, there was joy. There was joy. Uh, we have a joke in our, in our pastoral staff, you know? I'm not the most joy, joy guy, you know what I mean? I'm not like the most joy, you know? Like me, we have, me when I see th- People and see things. I see like sin. I see rebellion. I see stuff I need to change, you know, challenge, you know. I don't see joy. I'm, I'm thankful for other staff and other people in our church who see and sense and see the, the movement of God, the fill of the Spirit, and, and, and their natural inclination is one of joy and gladness. I want to see more joy and joy be more pervasive in our gatherings because joy is the inevitable result, as we talked about C.S. Lewis of a deep, passionate connection with this person, Jesus, and realizing what he has done and who he is. 
And so they were characterized by, I just, I just um, you know, when we get visitors after service, they'll come up and they go, oh, man, here's what we loved about this church. This church loved the diversity. This church, I love the passion. I hear that a lot. I love the passion. You know, I, love, I just one of these days want to hear somebody come and go, you know what I love about your church? There's just so much joy. There's just so much joy. I don't know. It's just a prayer. Will you pray for me so that I'd be more joyful? Um, Lastly, it says they also had sincere hearts when they met. And the word sincere literally means single-minded devotion or absence of pretense, actually. In other words, this was a group of people when they got together and somebody said, hey, Chris, how are you? People didn't respond. Oh, I'm okay when they weren't. Hey, how are things going? Ah, you know, things are, you know, when they were falling apart inside. As a community of people, when they got together, there was no fronting, there was no pretense. There was vulnerability and authenticity. Okay. I can talk, and we can talk a lot about this and what it means But as I thought about our church, you guys, and uh, where we're headed, these are common sense, practical things. But there are things that I want you to seriously think and pray about, things without which all that we're talking about this morning will be just a dream and impossibility. As I put these characteristic attributes of what practically we might be called to do, I want you to ask not just, well, I need to find somebody to do that for me. I want you to ask, how can I do that for someone? First, in order for this community to happen, this kind of biblical community, we need common time. I know this is like a brilliant insight, but you know, did you know that relationships don't happen unless there's time spent together? And in the area of time, I think there's two specific things that I want to call your attention to. One is availability. Are you available? 24 7 almost. <laughs> Chris. Only 24-7. This is so much conviction for me because you know what this meant for me? Am I available in such a way that somebody doesn't have to go, do I need to schedule you out like three weeks in advance? We can't have community if that's the case. Are you available? Are you available? Secondly, is frequency. Spending time together often, not just once a week, but making it a regular habit of a life. Common time. Secondly, common practices. The reality is that deep friendships and deep relationships are forged when you do things together, right? It may be attending church together. It may be Sabbath together. It may be doing ministry together. It also includes accountability, commitment to reconciliation, to forgiveness, to working things out. And yes, it includes fun, just fun, just fun. But common practices also, along with variety, next slide please, is spontaneity. Can we, you guys, can we, oh man, this is just so hard, this is so hard, but can, can we, this is, a, David, is this a pipe dream? Is this a pipe dream? Huh? It's a lot of work? I mean, can we, can we actually be a community together, and, and whether it be small groups, large groups, can we actually, you know, like last Saturday, I just called up one of our church guys and said, I'm like hungry for Vietnamese food. Let's go. He's like, when? I'm like, tomorrow noon. He's like, tomorrow noon? And it was that pause, you know? I said, man, scratch whatever you have. Let's just go. <laughs> Why is that funny? <laughs> you guys, you guys, seriously, if our relationships are contingent upon, I've got my Palm Pilot, I've got my day planner, forget about it. Forget it. Forget it. I'm not saying that's not important and that we need to schedule our lives, but if there's no room for spontaneity, how will genuine relationships develop? Think about your best friends. Think about your best friends. Next, common resources. What do I mean? Is sharing 
of our lives and all that entails together. One of the things I love about our church is we have very creative people. Very, very creative people. We've got a, a, a mom in our church with two kids with a third on the way. And she's got this crazy idea, right, of like getting like donations of like strollers and like car seats and a bunch of things so that anybody in our church, a mom, who may not be able to afford things like that can just like go to this place done by our church and get what they need. And she, by the way, she, by the way, is one of those incredible, phenomenal people who has opened her entire home and her life to anybody and anyone. And the relationships there, pretty amazing. And lastly, okay, what do I mean by commonplace? Every year, May and June, I have to say goodbye to like 60, 70 people from our church because they graduate, get a new job, get married, adventure, and different things. And as a pastor in the last six and a half years, I've gone through the whole motions of, oh God, you know, I got to say goodbye to people over and over again. This is the life in the city, right? And transiency and so on and so forth. And I understand that that's going to be a part of the deal of our church. But, here's the thing, but. I've also looked at the deepest relationships and friendships that I have, and you know who they are? There are people who've said, this city is my home. And I'm not going anywhere. What does that mean for you? I'm not asking you to go decide today to make Chicago your home for the rest of your life. That's not what I'm saying. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is this. If you're somebody here that said, you know what, I'm in the city of Chicago for one year, that's it. And I meet a lot of those people and it gets me so mad, you know. One year, that's it, and I'm out of here. I want to ask you, will you consider staying here too? You're here two years. I'm there for two years. Get my grad degree, get work, blah, 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 and I'm out of here. Would you consider staying Somebody says, I'm here for four years in college and I'm out of here. If that's you, will you consider staying? See, the reality is common time, common practices, and common resources. There are characteristic attributes as you look at some of the closest friends in your life and you go, why are we friends? Why are we together? Why is there depth of relationships? We spend time together. We're available. What's mine is yours. And we're in this place. Bow your heads with me, will you? Again, the question for you and for me isn't why doesn't somebody do that for me? But the question today is who can I do that for? Who can I be that for? You guys, relationships of trust, of vulnerability, of reciprocity, and the list is impossible without the context of a group of people for whom you are willing to step out of your comfort zone and be, be a brother, be a sister, be a friend. This morning, 
um, as the worship team sings this song. You don't have to sing it. I'm just going to ask them to sing a couple lines of it. Will you, will you hear it? This song is being prayed over you. And if you feel led to sing along, if you connect with the words, you can sing along. But otherwise, I just want you to hear these words. Hear these words as they're sung over you. The challenge for us to do this thing as a community of God, not going to mince words, it is hard, it is a long, tough path. And as people of God who have been called to embrace this truth and live it out, let's remember as we go forth that this is impossible without the Spirit of God at work in and among us. But He is here. He is in you. He is in me. He is among us. And He is active and at work today. Father, my prayer is that we would both be awed and at the same time also be burdened by the reality of what it is that you are calling us to. Father, we do not take shortcuts. We do not take the easy way or the easy road, but completely throwing ourselves at the mercy of the cross and dependence on your Holy Spirit, will you do only what you can do in this church body, in this community? And Spirit of God, as we leave forth in ways that you have convicted us and moved within us, help us to prayerfully think about what this practically means this week as we encounter our brothers and sisters, our neighbors, our coworkers, and the city and the neighborhood at large. For you, child of God, are called to be his witness from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth. He has gifted you and empowered you by the Spirit of God. You lack nothing. You lack nothing. You lack nothing to do what he has called you to do. The grace of God goes with you. The mercy of Jesus Christ is over you. And the fellowship of the Holy Spirit goes beside you. In the name of the Father, name of the Son, and name of the Holy Spirit. Amen and amen and amen. Have a great week, church. See you back here next Sunday as we continue our journey.